Okay, so this past week I was thinking about vacation. You might wonder, why are you thinking about vacation? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I need one. No. But anyway, I was thinking about vacation, and I was thinking about vacation in, in this context. I, th- I, think, I think this congregation can be broken down into essentially two groups of people when it comes to the topic of vacation. Two groups. There are those who, who like long car trips and consider them part of the vacation. And there are those who the thought of being together in an automobile with people in close proximity for eight or ten hours a day, day after day, is like a death sentence. A slow, agonizing death sentence. You know who you are. And I don't want to go on a car trip with you, if you're like that. But Carol and I love long car trips. Absolutely love them. For us, they are absolutely part of the vacation experience. Just being together for that long, long time. And our, and our children love long car trips too. But before we, we set out on a long trip like that, you know, even, even with GPS, right, that tells you go up to the end of your street, turn right, stop at the stop sign, you know, all of those things that, that my wife used to ha- tell me, but now I have a little computerized voice that can tell me. Even, bef- you know, even before that, I, I, I want to see where we're going. I, I want to see the whole route. I, I want to look at the map. I want to I kind of know where are we going? What's it look like? What are we going to encounter along the way? And, and, I, and I tell you all that because that's what we want to do this morning. That's what I want to do with you this morning. Because we're at a, we're at a major turning point. I know I say this like every six months, but it's true. We are at a major turning point in, in Matthew's gospel. We finished chapter 20 last week. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Okay, that's good. Uh, we have eight chapters left. Eight chapters left. And it's going to take us a while to get through the remaining eight chapters, to be sure. But there's a, there's a real transition that's going to happen here. Because those first 20 chapters covered the first, essentially, three and a half years of the, of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, and the remaining eight chapters are going to cover, essentially, one week. One week week we are we are entering the passion week the passion week the final days of the earthly life and ministry of the lord jesus christ and this is huge this is so significant and we know it's so significant by the way the gospel writers treat the subject matter this past week, I, I just did a little quick math, and uh, there are 89 total chapters in the four Gospels. 27 of those chapters deal with the last week in the life of Christ. That is 30%. 30% of the Gospels deal with the last week. Now, you think about the amount of material that deals with his birth. And it's very small in comparison. Very small. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. This final week of his life. And during these, these waning days that we're going to study together here in, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he demonstrates the most remarkable insight, the most remarkable wisdom, the most remarkable planning, and the most remarkable spiritual acuity that you can, can see. And it, and, it, and it was possible for him, and, and this is a big 
point here. It was possible for him, not so much because he relied on his divine nature, that he, that he, that he relied on his godness, but because he demonstrated what it means to be a man who is saturated in the word of God and walking in the power of the spirit of God. And so as we examine his life in this final week together, we're going to see that over and over and over and over again. The Jesus is the ultimate spirit-filled man. And the Spirit of God who, who filled him. And we read Isaiah 11 just a little bit ago. The Spirit of wisdom was upon him. That same Spirit of God, he resides in you and, and me. If we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now looking together at this this last week is is going to be very very helpful in putting the new testament together it's going to really help it's going to help straighten out our faith as we as we work this this through as we as we experience this final week together with Christ so this morning my task for you is to, is to step back and, and to look at the map, the, the big picture. That's what we're going to do. We will begin the details, and there are lots of details. And we'll look at all the details beginning next week. But this week, it's the big overview picture. So what we want to do is, is we want to follow this morning in the footsteps of Jesus during the week that changed the world. The week that changed the world. Now to get started, I need to take you to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Now the way we're going to do this is we are going to move in and around through all four Gospels. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to harmonize them for you. I want to sequence them for you. To take you through this final week. Beginning... Uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's the plan. That's where we're going. Really fast. So we're going to be flipping around, moving around. I'm I'm going to assume along the way a certain familiarity with these gospel accounts. There There will not be time to explain them, but don't worry. You keep coming back and we will explain them all to you as best we can. But I want to just set a little background because it's very, very important to understand this background. It sets the stage for next week, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. So it begins actually here in John 11. And the events of John 11, which happened just a few weeks prior to the triumphal entry. It's just a few weeks before Palm Sunday. And it begins in John chapter 11 and in verse 6. Jesus is informed that his, that, uh, that his friend, uh, Lazarus, who lives in Bethany, that's verse 1, is sick. He's sick. And verse 6, so when he, Jesus, heard that he was stick, sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That is a mystifying verse at, at first blush. His friend is sick. They've sent to him to come and to to heal his friend. And Jesus says, let's wait a couple of more days. Now, if we were to unwind this together, what we would see is by the time he arrives, Lazarus is now dead three days. Truth of the matter is Lazarus was dead at the time the messengers arrived to tell Jesus he was sick. He was already dead. But the point I want you to see is this is the only miracle... In the New Testament, in the Gospels, that, is, that Jesus deliberately makes more difficult. Deliberately makes more spectacular. He delays going so that Lazarus will now be three days in the tomb. In the words of the old King James, he will stinketh. 
decomposition will have begun. Now, Jesus has raised the dead on many occasions. He has never delayed raising the dead so that the body is now in a state of decomposition. Furthermore, this miracle takes place in Bethany. Bethany is located on the east side of the Mount of Olives, just outside the gates of Jerusalem, the capital city. So Jesus is going to do this incredible miracle, and he's going to do it right under the noses of the leadership of the nation, with, with many, many witnesses. And the most spectacular miracle you can imagine. He is going to call this man forth from the grave. He is going to recreate his body and draw him out. And in the process of doing that, he is going to, to create such a stir, such a buzz, such a, such a following, such an outcry, that he will become the most popular man among the people. And it will galvanize the leadership in their decision to kill him. Now, following the raising of Lazarus, John chapter 11, verse 54, after the decision has been made, verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Before he was an annoyance, now they're going to kill him. Therefore, verse 54, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Ephraim is about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a small village. After this most spectacular of miracles, Jesus retreats. He and his disciples, they go to this small village, not far away, but far enough away, and he hides out. And he hides out in this village for several weeks. Then he moves further north, joins up with the pilgrims from Galilee who are coming down to the Passover. He crosses over the Jordan River with them to avoid Samaria. He moves down the east side of the Jordan River. He crosses back over at Jericho. Along the way, he does teaching and he he does miracles. He heals the two blind beggars at Jericho. We looked at last week. And then he begins his ascent back up along with the pilgrims, up the the Mount of Olives from east to west to crest over and down and into Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't go into Jerusalem. He comes up that Mount of Olives. And there it's a Friday. It's a Friday. And he pauses in Bethany. He pauses in Bethany, the place where he had done the miracle. Chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. The rest of the crowds go up and over and down into Jerusalem to find lodging before the Sabbath begins at sundown. All the people want to know, is he coming to the feast? Verse 56, chapter 11. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Is he going to show up? And all those pilgrims who are with him say, yes, he will be at the feast. Well, when? Sunday morning. Because he's staying in Bethany over the Sabbath. He will be in the city Sunday morning. And beloved, that's why and how the crowds show up Sunday morning to escort him into the city. Jesus sets this up to to make his grand entrance. Now, while he is there... Saturday, Friday night into the Sabbath, and the the Sabbath Saturday. And then Saturday night in Bethany, there is a feast held. And I'm going to keep you here in John chapter 12. There is a feast that night, verses 2 and following. So they made him a supper there, and, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. The feast, actually, we're told, occurs at the home, in the home of Simon the leper. Mary, one of the sisters of Lazarus, 
Then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You know this account, right? Mary is anointing him for his burial. And the disciples protest this this lavish and, and, and from their point of view, wasteful treatment of, of this costly perfume, which they say could have been sold. And the money he made available to the poor, right? You know the story. The, the, the disciple who is making that argument most vigorously is Judas. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who, who was intending to betray him said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus rebukes Judas. He rebukes Judas. In response to that rebuke, Judas is now hardened in his heart to betray Jesus. The opportunity to do so will not come for several more days. But from this point forward, Judas is looking to betray him. He is looking to betray him. This is your background for the Passion Week. The the popularity, the acclaim of the crowds... The safe haven in Bethany, just outside the gates of Jerusalem, under the hospitality of Simon the leper. Close enough to get into the city and out again, and in and out, and in and out, so that he can minister and do what he needs to do in the final week of his life, and yet not get executed by the leadership of the nation who have bound themselves to kill him. He manages the crowd. He manages the popularity. He inflames the popularity. Prior to this, you remember, Jesus would say to people, don't tell anybody. Now he's saying, tell everybody. Because the crowds are what keep him safe. The authorities say, we cannot kill him now, not during the feast, lest there be a riot. Lest there be a riot. So that's your background. So we begin on Sunday. I'll take you to Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 21. And let's trace through the week. Matthew 21. Sunday. It begins with the triumphal entry. Verse 1. Now when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Beth. Phage to the, at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two of his disciples and go into the village and, and that opposite you and so forth. And next week I'll explain that passage to you. Okay. But they bring the donkey, right? And they put their cloaks on it. And, and he comes into the city and the pilgrims are out there and they're waving the palm branches and they're throwing the cloaks into the road. And he comes into the city as a triumphal king to the acclaim of the crowds. When he arrives in the city that day, it is late in the afternoon. And so he visits the temple. Mark chapter 11 and verse 11 adds a detail to us that's important. Verse 11, Mark 11, 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. It was already late. He visits the temple. It's late in the day. The, the money changers, those selling the sacrifices, they've already put their tables away. They've, they've, uh, they've closed shop for the day. Jesus looks around. He knows exactly what's going on, but there's no business happening at this point, and so he just observes and leaves. But he will be back. He will be back. He spends the night, according to verse 19, same chapter. When evening came, they would go out of the city. That is, they would go back up the Mount of Olives. And by the way, it's just about a, a little over a mile. I think it's a mile and in, in, uh, in, uh, about a mile and a half, a little short of a mile and a half from Bethany to the gates of Jerusalem. So it's that short walk. It's a Sabbath day's journey. 
So back out of the city, after he looks around the temple, back out of the city, back to Bethany, spends the night. That's Sunday. And then Monday begins. Now, a friend of mine, who some of you know well, Doug Bookman, he has this, uh, this expression that I just love, and so I use it. And, 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 he, and he says this. He says, given Sunday, why Friday? Given Sunday, given the, given the popularity and the acclaim of Sunday, how do you explain Friday? How do you go from being the honored conquering king to one who is despised and abandoned and hung to die on a Roman cross? How do you get from Sunday to Friday? Given Sunday, why Friday? I wish I could raise my eyebrows up and down the way Doug does when he answers the question and gets a twinkle in his eye, but his answer is Monday and Tuesday. Given Sunday, why Friday? The answer is Monday and Tuesday. The events of Monday and Tuesday will transform the crowds who will then call for his blood. And so what happens on Monday? Well, Monday... They go into the city early and on their way into the city, we're still in Mark 12, on their way into the city, Jesus encounters a fig tree along the road. Verse 11, uh, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 12. On the next day, that is Monday, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if it perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. He curses a fig tree. He curses a fig tree. And then they proceed on into the city. We'll talk about the cursing of the fig tree later. He proceeds on into the city. When he arrives in the city, he goes to the temple. This time it's early in the day. It's Monday morning. And he arrives at the temple and the merchandisers are in full swing. They are exchanging coinage. They are selling the sacrificial gifts. The, the, the high priesthood owns the franchises. And they are making money hand over fist, merchandising the people of God. And Jesus cleanses the temple. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Verse 16, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. That is an incredible statement. This this righteous prophet with with flaming eyes makes a a whip out of cords and and he goes about thrashing the place and he overturning all of their tables and he drives them out of the temple. But not only that, in in his zeal, Mark tells us he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Verse 16, that that is an amazing statement. Because what that means is for these next two days, Monday, Tuesday, Jesus controls the temple area. Now, the temple mount is 35 acres. Just for a point of reference, this property here is five acres. The temple mount is seven times the size of this property. It's massive. Now, it doesn't say he controls the entire temple mount. It says he controls the temple. And I think the proper way to understand that is the temple itself and the courts that surround it. And in the zeal of this righteous prophet, he now, as sovereign lord of, of the temple and the king of Israel, he, he basically says, I own the place and we're done with this. No more merchandising. No more shortcuts through the temple grounds. He purges the place. The prophet Malachi speaks of him coming into his temple with flaming fire and cleansing the place. And that's exactly what he does. Now, as you can well imagine, uh, he he was not very popular. He was already unpopular with the leadership. Now he's super unpopular with the leadership. The Sadducees, this is their turf. The temple is their grounds. He He has come to them on their grounds and he has absolutely devastated them. They want to kill him before, now they really want to kill him. And 
It's at this time, uh, we won't turn you there, but it's at this time, John 12 reports that some Greeks came to seek an audience with Jesus, right? They come to uh, Philip, and Philip goes to Andrew, and Philip and Andrew bring the Greeks to Jesus, and they say, hey, these Gentiles want to meet and talk to you, and Jesus answers them in the most odd way. He says to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's his answer. These Gentiles want to meet with you. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then, he, and then he talks about his own death, right? Unless a, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it, it will not bring forth life and so forth. All right, John includes, i just tell you this. John includes that, illust- that, that example of the Greeks coming to see Jesus because John is telling you that the nation is done. And the message is going to the Gentiles. That night, Monday night, Jesus leaves the city again back to Bethany under the safety of of Simon the leper. That's Monday. Now, I need to tell you something. When I said earlier that, 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 that these days display the incredible wisdom of the Son of Man. Jesus was very, very careful not to uh, infuriate both segments of the leadership of Israel at one time. He begins his public ministry with a cleansing of the temple. That's, Sarah's, that's Sadducee turf. And then he leaves and goes north into Galilee. That's Pharisees turf. So he's around Galilee, you know, 18 months, and he's doing all these miracles, and he's poking the Pharisees in the eyes constantly. And he's leaving the Sadducees alone. Then he comes back down here at the end, and he cleanses the temple a second time. Now you've got the Pharisees mad at him. Now you've got the Sadducees mad at him again. And now they are going to come together in the most improbable way because the Sadducees and the Pharisees hate each other. Right? But the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they come together to form their murderous plot. Tuesday, back into the temple. On the way into the city, they pass by the withered fig tree, Matthew reports to us. Back in Matthew chapter 21. At this point in time, the leadership of the nation is beside themselves. What are we going to do with this man? He is wildly popular with the crowds. Listen, the crowds knew they were being ripped off and they were not happy about it. And so when this prophet comes in and and does what all of them would have liked to have done but didn't have the courage to do, they're cheering him on. They are happy, happy, happy. So the, the leadership of the nation needs to pry him away from the crowds. They need to discredit him. They need to either get him to say something seditious so Rome will take care of him, or they need to have him say something so unpopular that the people abandon him and then they can kill him. And so they go after him. And there are a series now of four controversies that occur on Tuesday. Tuesday is a very, very long and grueling day. It begins here early on Tuesday, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23, when the chief priests and the elders first approach Jesus and challenge his authority. Verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? I love this answer. And Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. By the way, it's perfectly legitimate to answer a question with a question. The son of God does it a lot. Here's his question to them. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. That is the height of cynicism. We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He beats them. He bests them in open debate. And then Jesus tells three parables. Three parables, one right after another. 
in the hearing of both the people and the leadership. Matthew is the only one who records all three of these parables. The first parable begins in here in verse 21, and it's verses 28 to 32. It is the parable of the two sons. The parable of the two sons. And it is told to address the topic of the rebellion of the nation. Parable, what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go out work today in the vineyard. He answered, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. He answered and said, I will. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Okay. You know that parable. Then Jesus launches into a second parable. Beginning in verse 33, that runs all the way to verse 46, an extended parable. This is the parable of the landowner, or also known as the parable of the vine growers. You remember this one. This is about the man who has a vineyard, and he leases it out to some vine growers, right? And he comes to collect what is his at the time of the season. And they say, you know, wow, let's, uh, you know, beat, beat up his, uh, his servants and so forth. And he beats them up. And finally, he says, I'll send my son to them, and they will certainly respect him. And they say, this is the son. This is the heir. Let's kill him, and the vineyard will be ours. This addresses the retribution of the nation. Because what will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. He was speaking about them. He gives them one more parable. Chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, he gives them the parable of the wedding feast. The parable of the wedding feast. You remember, this is the one where the people show up at the wedding feast without the proper garments and they get kicked out. Okay? This is a parable addressing the rejection of the nation. The rejection of the nation. So the confrontation first, followed by three Parables, there are judgment parables. This reminds me, by the way, this, this whole events of this Tuesday remind me of a, of a heavyweight boxing. No, that's not true. It reminds me of a, um, a tag team wrestling match. That's what it reminds me of. A tag team wrestling match where one person goes in and wrestles and then he can kind of tag out, right? And another one comes in and, and wrestles in his place. And then when they get tired, he tags out and another one comes in. So there's one guy facing this tag team of wrestlers. That's kind of what's going to go on here. There is Jesus. And then the, each of these groups are going to come to him four different times, tagging out with the one before them. And so the next one comes in and gives it their best shot. And so he has bested the chief priests and the elders. They tag. Next comes the Pharisees and the Herodians. Strange bedfellows. Chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent, his, sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. And that dips, uh, uh, drips, by the way, with uh, flattery. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? <laughs> Jesus perceived their malice, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And you know how he answers the question, right? Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus best bests them. Tag. In come the Sadducees. Chapter 22, verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus to question him. Oh, now the Sadducees, they love this. They have a riddle that they have figured out, that they have used to confound the Pharisees for years. It's this, it's this hypothetical, it's this riddle about a man who, who uh, about a woman rather, who is married to a man who dies and then the man's brother in accordance with the law marries her and no children and he dies and then another and then another and another, right? You remember it. She's married repeatedly to these brothers. One has to wonder why, you know, people would continue to marry this woman. Um, but, you know, it's a riddle. It's a riddle. They think they've got him. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Gotcha. 
And of course, Jesus answers, doesn't he? And he gives that most amazing answer, which I would love to explain to you right now, but I'm not going to. So you'll have to come back for that one. You'll have to come back for that one. And then this is what's cool. Sadducees tag out. In comes a Pharisaic lawyer. Right? We say the lawyer for last. In comes the lawyer. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Oh, it's a simple question. What's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? And you know how Jesus answers. Then Jesus turns, verse 41, and he says, enough of these debates. Enough of this conflict. We have engaged in sword play, and I have bested all of you. We're calling this thing to to a halt. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, verse 41, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Bang! He silences them all. He silences them all. How? He is steeped in the word of God. He is so steeped in the word of God that it is at his fingertips. And like a, like a, like a master swordsman or a, or, a, or a nimble surgeon, he uses the power of the sword of the spirit. And he silences his attackers. By resorting to the scriptures. Beloved, that's instructive. That is instructive for you and I. We have been given the sword of the spirit. We need to learn to use it. We need to learn to use it. And by the way, the crowds absolutely love this. As you might imagine, Mark chapter 12, verse 37 Recounting the same event, end of verse 37, and the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. I bet they did. Right? Everybody loves it when there's a good fight. They loved it. They loved it. He had silenced his attackers. He turns from there, Matthew 23. And he begins to publicly denounce the leadership of the nation, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. Beginning in Matthew chapter 23, it's a series of woes he pronounces upon the Pharisees. Now listen to me. Again, we'll look at it in detail, but listen to this. The people did not like the Sadducees. They didn't follow the Sadducees. They despised the Sadducees. The Sadducees controlled the temple. You had to go to the temple as a faithful Jew in order to make the mandatory sacrifices. And so you had to deal with them. But they did not like them. They did not respect them. They despised them. The Pharisees were different. The Pharisees were the religious leaders among the people in the countryside. They were the ones in the synagogues. The people liked the Pharisees. They respected the Pharisees. And they wanted at various levels to emulate the Pharisees. The Pharisees embodied Judaism of its day. And so when Jesus calls down these woes upon the Pharisees, he is calling down woes upon their religious system. Their religious system. And that's huge. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Following this extended woes upon the Pharisees, Jesus then, chapter 23 at the end, verses 37 and following, this is Tuesday afternoon, Jesus laments the city of Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. He laments the city. Following that, he, he sits off in the side of the temple and, and he's observing the people putting their gifts into the, into the treasury and he observes a, a widow, you remember? And she puts in the widow's might. Matthew doesn't tell about it, but Mark does and Luke does. We're not preaching through Mark or we aren't preaching through Luke, so I can't help you with that other than to say this. It is not told as a way to commend one's generosity. It has nothing to do with generosity. Nothing to do with generosity. It is a critique of a religious system that would take a widow's last penny and leave her to die. That is what it's there for. Following this, back to Matthew, or we're still in Matthew, that's a good thing. We have what is called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew's chapter 24 and 25. The Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus' extended teaching that details the days preceding the Messiah's second coming. What will happen between his rejection and his second coming? And Jesus will teach his disciples. There are three questions they ask. He will answer these questions. That is the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. By now it is evening time. It is evening. Chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, Jesus privately foretells his crucifixion again. The Jewish authorities are plotting to kill him, verse 3, chapter 26. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. We have got to get him, but we cannot do it during the Passover festival because the people will riot. And if the people riot, the Romans will come and this whole thing will fall apart. And they do not know what they're going to do. And then in a moment, in walks their answer. In comes Judas. In comes Judas. Now, Matthew, beginning in verse 6 here and following, gives you a flashback to Saturday night. This is a flashback. It's, it's just given to you to set up the reason why Judas betrays Jesus. So Matthew flashes back to what happened on Saturday night at the feast in the house of Simon the leper. And Judas agrees, verse 14, to betray the Son of Man. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. This is Tuesday evening. Jesus leaves the city, back to Bethany. Now, there is some difference of opinion on this, to be sure, but I am persuaded that we now arrive at what is called a silent Wednesday. A silent Wednesday. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that there is no, there is no New Testament revelation of the events that occurred on Wednesday. It's quiet. Jesus is in Bethany, I believe. Earlier, I had told you that when he called down the woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees, he was calling down woes upon the religious system that they represented, that they were the, that they were the experts at. Thus, he was calling down God's woe upon the religious system of the nation of Israel. And he sent them home to think about it Wednesday. They have all Wednesday to think about what he has said. Will you have me or will you have them? Just put it in your mind way back. I know it goes back some long time when we were in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that I told you when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you need to understand it as there's a group of the Pharisees off to the side. And Jesus has said, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Contrasting himself with the religious system of the Pharisees. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. It's come back full circle. Come back full circle. Go home and think about it. 
Go home and think about it. Do you want me or do you want them? Thursday comes around. And it's time for the disciples to to celebrate the Passover meal together. Now, Judas, you remember, is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So Jesus establishes this rather elaborate plan in order to be able to celebrate the Passover together with his disciples and yet keep Judas from knowing where and when they're going to celebrate the Passover because Judas is going to get the, the Jewish authorities to come and arrest him. What a perfect opportunity. You're alone in a room celebrating the Passover. Boom, we swoop down on you and gather the whole bunch of you up. So he comes up with this elaborate plan. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 and following. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Boy, wouldn't Judas like to know. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, somewhere along the way, Jesus had already set this up. Listen, you don't find guys walking around with a pitcher of water in Jerusalem. It's not impossible, but it is rare. It is rare. So he uses his inner circle, the ones he trusts the most, to go and to make preparation. Well, Judas is probably, you kind of see Judas there. Where are you guys going? What are you doing? Can't say. How frustrated he must have been. How the anger must have been continuing to well up in his heart. And the guilt, knowing what he has committed to do. So they arrive there to celebrate the Passover on Thursday evening. According to Luke's gospel, we'll just take it there, Luke 22. I may actually make this. Luke 22, verses 24. This just stuns me. It only stuns me in that it reveals the capacity of the human heart. So it reveals my capacity. But they arrived there for the Passover meal, verse 24, Luke chapter 22. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as the, guess what? The greatest. Gee, I thought we resolved that, huh? He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and so forth. (sighs) This is the Passover. He's going to die. And they're still trying to figure out chief seats. Which of the great ones is the greatest of the great? So Jesus does the most amazing thing, according to John chapter 13 and verses 1 through 20. Jesus girds himself with a towel, and he begins to wash their feet. They're trying to figure out who's the greatest, and he is among them washing their stinking, dirty feet. Praise God, they get the message. Peter himself writes in his own letter that we are to don the apron of a slave. Peter never forgot that night. It finally got through. It finally got through. He washes their feet. I'm in John 13 now. Jesus tells them that some one of his disciples is going to betray them. And they all want to know who is it. Not I, not I, not I. By the way, this just points out the, the incredible uh, ability of Judas to conceal his crime. He's ripping them off all along. And they don't suspect him. No one says, you're the guy. No one suspects Judas. In fact, at the, at the meal, uh, Peter says to John, who is, who is uh, next to Jesus, at the meal, he says, ask him who it is. And so John leans back, you know, his kind of his face near Jesus' face, kind of whispers, who is it? Jesus tells him it is Judas. He tells him it is Judas. John 13, beginning in verse 21 and following, right? The one to whom I give the sop, this is the one. And he, and he does it and he hands it to Judas. And at that moment, it says, the devil entered in. 
He says to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Judas gets up and leaves, right? The disciples still think he's going out to buy something to give to the poor. They do not suspect him. Judas makes a beeline to the the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, in order to to get the guards, the temple guards, to come and to arrest Jesus. We've got to move quickly. We've got to get back to the upper room, and and we've got to get them. So Jesus, this is the way you need to read this section of John's gospel. You need to read it with, with an idea that Jesus, not that he had a wristwatch, but he was basically keeping track of time. He's counting it down. How long will it take him to get here, to get them, and them to get back here? I've got this much time. And so he begins here in John chapter uh, uh, 14, rather, to give them what is known as the upper room discourse. It's a message of comfort to his disciples. He doesn't have much time now, but he's speaking to them. These are his last words to them. Verse 31. Mentally, he's been counting down the time. End of verse 31. Get up. Let us go from here. We got to get out of here. And so they do. They get up and they leave. They get up and they leave. Now, he is on his way to Gethsemane. And so as he is on his way to Gethsemane, he continues to teach his disciples. They are walking you know, across the city and, and out and down over the Kidron Valley and up to the, just the, basically the, sl- the beginning of the slope of the Mount of Olives where there is this olive garden called Gethsemane. And so along the way, Jesus teaches his disciples in John 15 about the vine and the branches and so forth. And in chapter 16, about the coming of the Spirit. Then in chapter 17, it's recorded for us his high priestly prayer for them. Verse 18, or chapter 18, pardon me, chapter 18, verse 1, John's Gospel. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So the high priestly prayer is is spoken somewhere near the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, the, the Passover lambs are being slaughtered by this time, and as they cross the Kidron and the brook, It's running red with the blood of the lambs that have been slain in the temple that day as they wash it down in the light of the moon. And it was a full moon. He sees the blood red creek. He goes into the garden. He says to his disciples, stay watch with me. Keep watch with me while I go away and pray. And you know what happens. They cannot keep watch with him. He suffers alone in the garden. By this time, it is early, early, early Friday morning, well before dawn. Judas, having received a contingent of soldiers, Roman soldiers and and temple guards, has gone to the upper room to arrest Jesus and his disciples. You can imagine his frustration when he gets there. Nobody there. What am I going to do? And then it dawns on him. I know where he went. He likes to go there. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so they track across the city. They arrive there in the garden long before dawn, according to Matthew chapter 26. They arrive. Verse 47. Jesus is still speaking with his disciples. Behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Judas had already said, I will, I will let you know who it is with a kiss. With a kiss. And so Jesus is arrested. He is taken away there in the pre-dawn hours. He goes first to the, to the home of Caiaphas, the, the high priest. We'll explain all that when we get there. And the beginning of six illegal trials. He has tried six times, all of them illegal. He is acquitted, but they keep trying him. If at first one does not succeed, we try, try again. And that was lame. They try him again and again and again. They already know the verdict, right? What's the verdict? What's the verdict? Now we just need a reason. And we can't do it ourselves. We're not going to stone him. 
We're not going to lynch him like a mob. We want him executed by the Romans. We want him officially repudiated and executed. So we will pull Rome into this. And they do. But over and over again, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Wrong answer. Try again. What's the charge against him? Listen, we wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't a really bad guy, they say. How's that for an indictment? All of this happens before 9 a.m. They finally get the indictment they're looking for, right? I need to release. Who Who will I release for you? Barabbas or this one? King of the Jews. We have no king but Caesar. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And so he is taken away. And the crucifixion begins around 9 a.m. We're in Matthew 27 by this point. Of course, you know, uh, Judas now has remorse for all of this. And by the way, there's a, there is a massive difference between remorse and repentance. There is no repentance in this man. There is remorse. And he goes out and hangs himself. Jesus is crucified between two criminals. There's a series of sayings from the cross. We'll cover all that when we get there. And he dies. And the veil of the temple is torn in two, right? From top to bottom. Because the death of the Son of Man tears open access to the Holy of Holies, to the very throne room of God. They take him down from the cross and they bury him. And he was dead, by the way. Very dead. The Romans knew how to kill somebody. They were really good at it. They knew when he was dead. Now, Pilate was a little surprised that he had died that quickly. But there was no question he was dead. They didn't put away any nonsense about, you know, he had just passed out. And when they put him in the cool of the tomb, he revived, you know, and then pushed the stone away and crawled out or... Or any other such nonsense. They put him in a borrowed tomb. He is buried before sundown Friday. They got to get him in the tomb before the, pass, before the Sabbath begins. So he's buried before sundown on Friday in a borrowed tomb. Saturday is the Sabbath. It is a somber day. A somber day. All hope is lost. Strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered and they fled. Early Sunday morning, some women go to the tomb. They go to the tomb to anoint the body because they had to get him in the ground so quickly because of the coming Sabbath. They didn't have time to properly prepare him for burial. So they're going now to do what they wanted to do before. Now, they're along the way. They're talking about, how are we going to get the stone moved, by the way? Which one of you is strong enough to move that? And they get there, and they find the stone rolled away, right? And there's no one there. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Death is conquered. The gates of heaven are thrown open wide. The angels that they encounter say to them, according to Luke chapter 24, verse 5 and following, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And thus, beloved, we celebrate... Every Easter Sunday, we say to one another, he is risen. And they repeat back, he is risen indeed. Praise God. He's conquered death. He's shattered sin. He has made full atonement for his people. You and I 
you and I, by faith, receive the gift of life to come. Praise God for his goodness. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. To say thank you seems so inadequate. We're stunned, we're awed. To think that your son would come, would suffer, would die for me. Oh Lord, may that reality sink in. But he didn't just die. He rose again. He shattered the power of sin. He defanged death. He lives forevermore. And he has granted to me the power of the resurrection life, the the life of the age to come. I too now live. And we'll see him face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.